I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm delighted to, to join President Biden and Prime Minister Morrison to announce that the United Kingdom, Australia and the United States are creating a new trilateral defense partnership known as AUKUS. When it was unveiled on the world stage last week, the new strategic alliance between the UK, the US and Australia was met with astonishment, not least by the French, who watched in shock as their own submarine deal with the Australians was being torn up in public. C'est vraiment en bon français... Uh... It is really a stab in the back. We built a relationship of trust with Australia, and this trust has been betrayed, and I'm angry today and bitter about this breach. Building new alliances appeared to have put old ones at risk. Whatever the long-term benefits or harm that are going to be caused by this deal, in the short term, it's been a tremendous diplomatic cock-up. I just think it's, it's, it's time for some of our dearest friends around the world to you know, prony and grip uh, about all this, uh, and donny moi and break. But while the diplomatic spat with France is still unfolding, how has this deal gone down in Southeast Asia? When I heard about this deal, the first inklings of a kind of dread that East Asia really is now entering a period of confrontation. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, AUKUS. What lies beneath the new submarine pact? They were tactful and diplomatic enough not to use the word China in the announcement. But there's no doubt at all that this is all about China... Richard Lloyd Parry is The Times' Asia editor. Like most of us, he was stunned by the announcement last week. Well, good morning from Australia. <laughs> I'm very pleased to join two great friends of freedom and of Australia, Prime Minister Johnson and President Biden. Today, we join our nations in a next-generation partnership built on a strong foundation of proven trust. And the first task of this partnership will be to help Australia acquire a fleet of nuclear-powered submarines, emphasising, of course, that the submarines in question will be powered by nuclear reactors, not armed with nuclear weapons. Australia, the UK and US partnership, AUKUS, it sounds strange and all these acronyms, but it's, it's a good one. 
The future of each of our nations, and indeed the world, depends on a free and open Indo-Pacific enduring and flourishing in the decades ahead. Richard didn't watch the announcement live, as he's based in Tokyo. And like many of the people in Southeast Asia, who the news was supposed to reassure, it came unannounced in the early hours of the morning. I think I was probably asleep or perhaps having a shower when it's actually the announcement was made. It sounds as if only a few dozen people in the world knew this was coming. The reaction from countries in Asia has been mixed. I think in places like Japan, uh, Taiwan, Singapore, a lot of governments or a number of governments have quietly welcomed this. They haven't put a lot of emphasis on it because they don't want to alienate China. The Chinese spokesman said the kind of things that they habitually say when things like this come up. It severely damages regional peace and stability, intensifies the arms race, and jeopardizes international efforts promoting the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. They said it's uh, old-fashioned, Cold War thinking, inappropriate in the modern age, and that China is dedicated to rising to power peacefully. So on the face of it, they were annoyed and displeased by this. I think, though, as it's unfolded, they must in some ways be secretly chuckling because, of course, what this deal promises is nuclear submarines for Australia in perhaps 10 or 15 years. So it's a good way off before the facts on the ground or in the ocean will change. But the immediate effect has been far from putting China at a disadvantage, has been to open up bitter discord and open quarrelling among the Western allies, particularly France on one side, Australia, US on the other, you know, the Chinese must have been absolutely delighted to see the bitter squabbling that's ensued. The UK and France uh, have, uh, I believe, a, a very, very important and indestructible relationship. And uh, of course, we'll be talking to all our friends about how to, to make the AUKUS pact work so that it's not exclusionary, it's not uh, divisive, and it really doesn't have to be that way. One of the reasons why this announcement was so staggering in a way, is that for a number of years now, there has been anxious talk about the potential in East Asia for a new Cold War, a state of confrontation between two blocs, China on one side, US, Japan, NATO allies on the other, and also fears of, of an arms race, because military spending among East Asian countries is going up very fast. And until last week, those fears, they felt rather theoretical. They were rather airy. There wasn't much to them, really. But this announcement, this, this grouping of the three allies, AUKUS, really does make concrete a sense that the region is lining up on two sides. It's amazing, the idea of Australia having nuclear submarines. No other American ally has been allowed access to that technology apart from the United Kingdom. It does impart a sense of everything accelerating, escalating, gathering pace and makes that fear of an arms race all the more real and easier to grasp. And around the world to maintain a free and open Indo-Pacific and build a future of peace, opportunity 
for all the people of the region. This is what we're about. I want to thank you all, and I look forward to seeing both of you in person very soon, I hope. Thank you. Thank you. Xi Jinping, he has made it his business to assert Chinese ambitions. For those watching, China's ambitions are clear to see. China wants to dominate East Asia. It believes that is its historical destiny. And it regards the 20th century as a brief aberration in the long, glorious 5,000-year history of China, period of weakness that will soon be put in the past as China reasserts itself in the region and in the world. And it shows very little sign of compromising with anyone about that to the slightest degree. The question is, how do you deal with this increasingly powerful regional power, which is on course to become a global superpower. The new AUKUS alliance is just one attempt to address this, and it's a development that other countries in Asia, especially China's nearest neighbours, will have been watching closely. China in the past few years has not only spent more and more on its armed forces, but has asserted itself in ways that were formerly unimaginable. I mean, building up these military bases in the South China Sea, skirmishing with Japanese patrol boats off the Senkaku Islands, skirmishing with India on the land border in the Himalayas, and making threats over Taiwan. So there are plenty of people who might agree, you know, that this doesn't increase the sense of confrontation, but who believe that that is a good and necessary thing because China has to be checked. It does sort of have a slight feel of, of the run-up to the First World War with all the sort of shipbuilding. And there's a slight fear that although everyone's trying to protect themselves, you might inexorably be leading towards sort of an arms race, which doesn't end well. I mean, in particular, you know, this has come at a time when NATO has just suffered a massive loss in Afghanistan. And when that happened, people were, were asking how countries like Taiwan would be watching that with, with the sense that if they were invaded, no help would be coming. Does this alliance change that? If China was to suddenly make a military claim on Taiwan, would we be more likely to step in now? I think that's a key question. I think Theresa May posed that question to Boris Johnson the other day. What are the implications of this pact? for the stance that would be taken by the United Kingdom for its response should China attempt to invade Taiwan? That is a question that no politicians have answered. Mr Speaker, the, uh, the United Kingdom uh, remains determined to uh, defend international law. That is the strong advice we would give uh, to our friends uh, across the world and uh, the strong advice that we would give uh, to, the, uh, to the government in Beijing. When British politicians come out to, to Tokyo, as they occasionally do. I have in the past put that question myself. How does that go down? You don't get a straight answer because they can't answer it. I mean, I think the truth is they don't know the answer, however much they talk about. The decision to send fighting forces to war is one that's you know made on the spur of the moment at the time. You can't expect a, a prime minister to commit troops to a war that hasn't even started yet at some unspecified point in the future. But it's very difficult now to imagine that that's something that a, a British government or the British public would willingly or enthusiastically embrace. And what role has Australia played up until now in standing up to China in the region? Well, Australia, of course, is, is a long way from being 
that the biggest or most important country in the region politically or economically is much smaller than Japan, South Korea. But it is the biggest and most important Anglophone country. And for that reason, it has, you know, historically and culturally stronger bonds with the UK and in some ways with the US. At times, that relationship has seemed almost too close. Back in the George W. Bush era, Australia's then Prime Minister, John Howard, famously announced that Australia would act as America's deputy sheriff in Asia. And that went down very badly with a lot of people. I mean, in some ways it was seen as as presumptuous for Australia, which has quite a small armed forces, to claim that role. But also a lot of Australians thought it was shameful and embarrassing that they should be offering to be a deputy to anyone. But that gives you some idea of the thinking of Conservatives in Australia. Is there any fear that this is almost sort of um, asking for trouble too, wanting to be America's deputy sheriff in the area? Yeah, I mean, of course, there's that as well. One of the reasons why some people are deploring this agreement is because they believe it's going to create the world that we all fear, that if you start forming strategic blocks like this, then the Cold War will onrush towards you. The reason that Australia gives for needing to tear up its deal with France and take on these much more advanced American nuclear submarines is that in the last five years or so, since it made that French deal, the situation has changed. And Australia has directly faced Chinese assertiveness, which is a polite way of putting it, some would call it aggression, in the form of trade sanctions. China was very annoyed when the Australian government said that it supported an investigation into the origins of COVID-19. And one of the things that followed that was essentially sanctions embargoes by Chinese importers on some Australian commodities. And the Australian economy depends a lot on those. So for that reason, Australia is feeling, among the countries in the region, more vulnerable to the anger and the displeasure of Beijing. Will this make Australia more of a target for China? The possession of nuclear submarines, even though they're not going to be armed with nuclear weapons, they have nuclear propulsion, will give Australia much greater strategic reach. It will enable Australia not only to send submarines out within its own waterways, but to send these nuclear submarines out for months to hover right off the coast of China. So that if China does, for some reason in the future, attack Australia, Australia will have a way of striking back that China will find very hard to predict. So it gives it much enhanced deterrent capability. But I think the other aspect of it is the diplomatic one. I mean, no one else apart from Britain has been given this US nuclear technology. India wants it, but was told no. So the question then is, well, What's the quid pro quo? The US is doing Australia a tremendous favour in security terms. What's going to be expected in return? It's unlikely to be just about this deal. The other thing, of course, is that it makes Australia very dependent on continuing US support and the stability of that relationship. Now, stability 
in the last few years hasn't been what people have associated with the United States. What if the next president doesn't like this deal and pulls out? Where does that leave Australia? It can't go back to France and get submarines from them. So there's a lot invested in this and a lot of uncertainty. When the stakes are so high, why would Australia be so keen to gamble on a new alliance? In a moment, we'll look at the threats it faces from a more assertive China and the tensions brewing on its doorstep in the South China Sea. But first... Hi, this is Tom Whipple, science editor for The Times. Thanks for listening. By doing so, you enable me to keep pace with the rapidly changing developments in the coronavirus pandemic and more. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one free month. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Australia, the US and the UK have long been military allies. We share intelligence as part of the Five Eyes Agreement and we fight side by side in NATO. The new AUKUS alliance would seem almost unnecessary in normal times. But in Southeast Asia, things are far from normal. Over the last decade, tensions have been ratcheting up between China and its neighbours in the South China Sea. The South China Sea is one of the world's most important strategic waterways. You hear various figures, but one that's often bandied about is that $5 trillion worth of trade goes through the South China Sea every year. Essentially, the oil and natural gas from the Middle East that powers the economies of Japan, China and South Korea comes by tanker through the South China Sea. So who who controls the South China Sea has great power. They'd also have access to the vast and as yet untapped 
resources of oil and gas under the sea. It's no wonder it's such a hotly contested region. The South China Sea abuts China to the north, but in every other direction, south, west and east. It's the countries of Southeast Asia, again, a very dynamic, densely populated and economically prosperous region of smaller countries. And five of them claim some of the islands in the South China Sea, the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei, uh, and also Taiwan, which is technically Southeast Asia. So th this is why the, the South China Sea is so important, because it has all these countries, these economies, these interests adjoining it in this very rich, prosperous, and somewhat unstable region. These countries all claim sovereignty over parts of the South China Sea. But China claims sovereignty over almost all of it. And in the last five or ten years, China has asserted those claims not only verbally, but by converting small features in the South China Sea, reefs and rocks, into essentially stationary aircraft carriers. They've concreted them over. They've built large runways that can take fighter jets. They've built jetties and they've installed facilities that could host missiles in the future. And this has caused tremendous alarm because, you know, it appears to be a, a preemptive bid for that essential control of the South China Sea. China's aggressive manoeuvres in the South China Sea, which frequently violate international laws, have caused alarm across the region. The rise of China, military and economic, is a challenge to governments all over the world, and none more so than the countries of, of Southeast Asia. And those countries face a great dilemma because none of them are superpowers or have the prospect of, of becoming so. The biggest of them is, is Indonesia. It certainly can't stand up to, to China in a fight. And these countries are also extremely dependent on, on the Chinese economy. So they have multiple reasons for not wanting to face or confront China. The United States, since its victory over Japan in the Second World War, it's had military forces permanently based in the region. They were in the Philippines for a long time. They continue to be based in Japan and South Korea. And the security of the Asia-Pacific has been at the heart of U.S. military security strategy. That's one of the reasons why the U.S. and other Western allies have also become involved in the South China Sea. Many of the countries in Southeast Asia have looked to America to police China's behaviour when it breaks international laws by claiming control over the sea. The United States, and, and more recently Britain as well, have taken to sailing their naval ships through the South China Sea, sometimes very close to these Chinese bases. The point being to assert freedom of navigation, to make a gesture which says, we don't accept your claims, these are international waters, anyone can pass through them, and that's what we're doing. Why did China believe that they're entitled to control of the sea? The Nine Dash Line is a phrase that comes up all the time in discussion of the South China Sea. Back in the 1940s, as Japan lost the Second World War, and with it, its right to some of the islands in the South China Sea, a Chinese geographer etched a series of dashes, a broken line on a map, showing what he believed should now be Chinese territory. 
it took in most of the South China Sea. The map was never agreed in any of the treaties after the war, but years later, it's now become the centre of China's claim over the region. They're just the kind of dashes you draw to demarcate a very rough boundary on a rather large-scale map. So each of the dashes in physical terms on the Earth would be enormous. It's not a fine line. It's just someone got a map and doodled these nine lines on it. This is not one of those territorial disputes that comes down to the detail and the technicalities. It doesn't really have as much, I think, to do with with actual rights and believe you have rights as to do with interests. It believes that control of the sea is central to its physical security, also its food security and its security in natural resources. And as the region's strongest power, it has the capacity to claim and to assert those rights. China shows no signs of backing down. Even in just the last few months, tensions have been escalating in the South China Sea. The Chinese armed forces uh, have held exercises there. The United States has sailed its aircraft carrier and other ships through there. Just a couple of weeks ago, a USS destroyer sailed very close to Mischief Reef, which is one of these Chinese military bases. Brilliantly named. Mischief Reef, yes, it is. And the other one is called Fiery Cross Reef, which is also rather vivid. And it got shouted at by the PLA. So the, uh, the tensions continue. In terms of how the US, Australia, UK deal affects the South China Sea, we don't know that yet. But when they made this announcement, they weren't just announcing a a a new defence contract. They could have done it that way. They could have simply said, well, sadly, we've um, cut the, the French contract and instead we're buying American, UK submarines. But they presented it as something far more ambitious than that, as a pact between these three allies. So the question is, what's that going to mean apart from submarines? And it remains to be seen, but one can very well imagine that in the future, the three navies, uh, the three armed forces will work more closely together in the region, conduct exercises, and it will be easy to imagine that some of those will be held in the tense waters of the South China Sea. From where you're sitting, as a British journalist in Japan, where you're watching the tensions in the South China Sea and around China, how does this deal look to you? There's no doubt in my mind that whatever the long-term benefits or harm that are going to be caused by this deal, in the short term, it's been a tremendous diplomatic cock-up. I mean, the hurt and, and bitterness of not only the French, but more mutedly, the European Union broadly, is very, very obvious. I, I don't think the, the, the British, Americans, Australians had any idea it was going to be like that, and they should have done. That's the job of diplomats, is to anticipate these things and sound them out. They should have handled it much, much better, and they could have done. In the long run, yeah, it's complicated. I mean, I'm old enough to have grown up uh, in the, the last 20 years of the, the Cold War in Europe, and I remember very vividly the anxieties of that time, that horrible sense that as daily life was going on, we were living with this constant threat of a nuclear war. And for the last 26 or 27 years, I've lived in, in East Asia, which has always seemed you know, immune to all of that. I, I did feel when I heard about this deal and, and read about it, the first inklings of a kind of dread that East Asia really is now 
entering a period of confrontation. And this is accompanied by the sense that, you know, really, this, the, with the way this whole deal is unfolded, it doesn't inspire confidence that the three Western powers really know what they're doing. Uh, I mean, if they miscalculated the reaction of their own close allies, can we be sure that they've correctly calculated the long-term strategic effect and the good or harm it will do? The answer is that nobody knows yet. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times Asia editor, Richard Lloyd Parry. You can read all of Richard's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers today were Sevda Moyasari and Leona Hamid. The executive producer was James Shield, and sound design was by Falcon Kisselduk. If you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do drop us a line at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Thanks for listening. See you again soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.